Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 369. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Sultan Medji. He is the former head of innovation at the FDIC. Now, he left that post earlier this year. And I wanted to get him on the show because he has a lot to say now about the state of financial regulation. He wrote an op-ed in Bloomberg soon after he left that really didn't mince words and basically shared that we really have a lot of work to do if we're going to um, keep up with the pace of financial innovation. So we get into that in some depth. We talk about what... uh, what are the biggest challenges for agencies like the FDIC today? What innovation is really most needed in the banking system? We have a creative exercise where we go through what an ideal financial regulatory system would look like. And we talk about what are the actual changes in reality that need to happen to get us where we want to be. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Sultan. Oh, thanks for having me, Peter. Good to see you. Good to see you. My pleasure. So let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. Just give us some of the career highlights to date. Thanks for having me. And it's always kind of interesting because I think a lot of people who know of me or or know me know me from my role at FDIC, where I was the Mm -hmm. first chief innovation officer, which I just left a few months ago. But before that, I spent you know basically twelve years building and selling startups in, in cloud computing, fintech, and in biotech, and then another five or six years before that on the corporate side, and then ten years before that as an academic researcher focused on artificial intelligence. So you know, if you say what's my actual you know <laughs> coming out of school skill set, it's uh, building AI and working on things like the first web browser, working on being the lead one of the lead tech guys at New York Stock Exchange, and a few other things like that. Okay, so then I remember when um, the FDIC launched this search for a head of innovation, there was a long process before they they found you and you started. So maybe we can, I'd love to get your thoughts on why you took the job at the FDIC. So there are a couple of things. So first, I knew about the job. I knew about this program for quite a while. I was running a company. In fact, the chair and the chief of staff, her chief of staff went kind of out of their way to make sure that a lot of us from industry were actually kind of knew about it and you know, yep. were helping them try to find someone and they, they'd hired a recruiter and all this other stuff. And you know, they got close a few times, but the thing that kind of, I would say not just timing, but also the thing that was kind of exciting for me is, you know, in my previous role, I'd actually been working with the FDIC on, on some tech innovative stuff. And mm-hmm. I just had this really kind of great opportunity to jump in. And and there were three things they were really looking for. One is they wanted somebody with technical credibility, somebody who really kind of knew how it worked, knew how the markets worked, could really understand, you know, if we're talking about AI or crypto or quantum computing, you know, they actually know what it is because the federal regulatory system really doesn't have people with that kind of STEM experience in leadership roles. The second is they wanted somebody who understood the regulatory system and had worked with it. And so obviously I'd worked with SEC previously, I'd worked with FDA, obviously I'd worked with the banking regulators, you know, OCC, Fed, and, and FDIC. So I knew the landscape, I knew a lot of the people and all that. And the third is they wanted somebody who knew how to build stuff and knew how to transform things. And I've done that both in, you know, starting small to mid-sized businesses, but also, you know, running large transformation programs because there was a non-trivial amount of that. And so 
you put those three things together, there's just really not a lot of people in the United States that kind of live in those three universes and uh, right. in that community. So, right. So then when you, you get to the FDIC, what are the innovations that you were most focused on? Well, it's interesting, you know, what I knew before I signed paperwork and took the oath and what I knew after that are, are really radically different. You know, once <laughs> kind of, once, you know, you go in and you think, okay, great, we're going to, you know, streamline the examination process and we're going to, you know, figure out how to be more data driven and you have all these things. And then, you know, basic things like checking your email on your government issued phone was, wasn't something you could really do. Like you couldn't open attachments. I couldn't respond to Teams messages, you know, stuff like that. So you know, the first six months I was there, it was a lot of kind of weirdly tactical stuff. So, you know, a complete refresh of end user compute for the agency, an entire refresh on how we did collaboration, especially with the other agencies. It was a lot of sort of like making sure that people had tools that were, you know, reasonably modern. You know, the email client on the endpoint device the day I started was copyrighted 2009 and wow. I started in 2021. I'm fairly public about the fact that I think a lot of the the federal IT organizations are really good at hiring project managers and, and hiring government contractors, but not really good at actually getting anything done. So then, you know, switching to, you know, more outcomes focused things, you know, I really tried to get people to start thinking about process as being something that you do to get to an outcome, not just the sake of doing it. You know, the first couple of weeks I was there, I would do 10 hours of meetings on Zoom, you know, like you and I are talking right now a day. And I wouldn't get any work done because everybody had to walk around and introduce themselves and talk about what they did this week and, you know, talk about this and talk about that. And at the end of an hour long meeting, nothing actually got done. No decisions were made, nothing like that. So I spent a lot of time trying to change that energy and then building things like sandboxing apparatuses, programmatic functions and other things like that to really create a division inside the agency that was specifically focused on outcomes, which didn't really exist. So as far as like the, um, technology, the innovations that exist at the FDIC, like call reports is one thing that the former chairman has uh, was very uh, vocal about. What are some of the things that were the highest on your priority list? Yeah. So there were a bunch of innovative programs that were kind of what I call market-facing that immediately landed on my lap. And the first was the call port modernization program. And it was really trying to figure out how to take what existed for larger institutions and make it available to all institutions so that, you know, you didn't have to have them, you know, faxing call reports in, which many banks still do, but actually have them just shipping the data over and shipping a subset of the total data. You know, it's interesting, day, call it 60 on the job, we had a system that could absorb call report data in real time, do all the real time analytics, all that other great stuff. That was not the hard part. The thing that was actually harder was getting the actual examination teams to use it and not just stay using the old way they operated. So we did culprit modernization. We spent a lot of time on cybersecurity, which mostly I still can't talk about. We spent a lot of time looking at cryptocurrencies and Web3 and artificial intelligence and new programs. And then the other kind of final thing, there was a lot of interagency and intergovernmental work that really wasn't getting done too much. And so what we did is try to establish a collaboration. So for example, one of the very last things I did before I left was create a collaboration between the FDIC and FinCEN 
to focus on collaborating on how to move the discussions around digital identity forward, because that's a big topic and we need to really get focused on that. And so we did. And then finally, I'll say one thing that we did that I was really quite proud of is we did a lot of work around financial inclusion and, and kind of working on equity in the overall banking system. And so we did a number of public events. You know, We started the process of creating a fund to specifically help ensure that minority-owned depository institutions and CDFIs were, were getting kind of the same level of access that their peers were getting. And so it was a fantastic series of activities. And you'd have to ask the current acting chair how they're going. Right, right. Okay. So then, you know, as you look at the banking system today, I mean, what is most urgent, do you think? I mean, maybe it's not just looking at FDIC type oversight, but what do you think is most urgent for banks today, particularly when it comes to technology? What do they need most? I actually spent a lot of time talking about this, and it's really three things. The first is cybersecurity, cybersecurity, and cybersecurity. <laughs> I have publicly said of all the banks I've looked at in my time in the banking system, there are only two that I feel like actually do a level of cybersecurity work internal to the organization that makes me comfortable that I would put my money in. And I obviously have, wasn't able to say that when I worked in the agency, but I have said it you know, more recently. And so out of the you know, 4,500 or so banks in the United States, I think there are two that I've looked at. Now, obviously, I haven't looked at all 4,500, so I'm sure there are some others, but of all the ones I've looked at, there are only two that I'm very comfortable with. Before you go, I just want to touch into that. Are you saying that they're vulnerable to hacking? They're vulnerable just to the websites going down, to money being taken? What are you saying? Or all of the above? All of the above. I mean, the biggest challenge we have, you know, kind of as a civilization right now is we need, you know, another five to 10 million cybersecurity experts trained and in market doing their job because we have a lot of legacy tech and this is a large threat landscape and we just don't have a pathway to do it. So that's actually, you know, one of the things I've started to do since I left is I've joined Duke's uh, engineering school and I'm actually building more curriculums around cybersecurity because we just need to get more cybersecurity people in market, which actually gets to kind of the second thing I think that's really going to begin to be more of an issue in the banking system, which is just human capital. The age of the leadership of most of the banks in this country is pretty high relative to the rest of the market. So, you know, roughly speaking, the median age in the workforce in the United States is like 36, 37, 38, like late 30s, basically. And in the banking sector, it's in the high 50s. And wow. so you can't have a two decade shift like that and still have people sticking around, you know. So the joke always goes five years ago, the average bank CEO was 60 and the bank chairman was 65. And now five years later, the average age of the bank CEO is 65 and the bank chair is 70 because it's the same <laughs> between the two. It's the same 9,000 people, basically. Right. So, you know, we have a huge human capital issue. And the, the challenge is, is, you know, that next generation of people in that market just aren't going into the sector. You know, they're going to fintechs, they're going to cryptos, they're going to tech. They don't have as many people, especially with STEM backgrounds, you know, in their hiring pipeline. Right. That's really a, a problem that even fintech, I mean, I think the talent that is available, it's pretty solid. A lot of fintech companies do well with it, but there's just not enough great people to go around, it seems. So I'm sure banks are really struggling with that. So then you, know, you sort of touched on it. I want to kind of get your sense on what's the biggest challenge to actually enacting change at the FDIC? I'll broaden the question slightly because then we can tie it into what I was just talking about. Whether you're talking about the banking system writ large in the United States or the regulatory system, they're really quite similar. So hearing you know bankers complain about the regulators and hearing regulators complain about the bankers, you know, it's it's a lot of the same things you hear. But the biggest challenge is in so many legacy organizations and in this market in particular, no one has ever been incentivized or really trained on how to systematize change. 
If you're in the fintech ecosystem, the tech ecosystem, most other markets here, you don't do the same job three years ago that you were doing, right? Today, the job is different. For you and I, this is absolutely true, right? Like, mm-hmm. You don't sit in the same job for seven years and do things exactly the same way. Like that notion of change, especially around digital, has really been systematized into so many markets over the last 25 years. You know, banking has been a little insulated from that. And so whether we're talking about a regulatory system that is doing things the exact same way they were doing it in 1987, or banks that were are doing things fundamentally the exact same way they were doing it in 2005, you see a lot of that same issue. You see a kind of an analog mindset. You see people saying, well, you know, we just got to wait for COVID to be over so people get back in their cars so we can buy radio spots so they know about us and drive by <laughs> our signs by the side of the road. And, you know, you hear bankers say that. And I'm just like, I don't think you really understand where your customer base is or who your customer base is about to be. And so that's where there is a metric that I tell everyone that if you're running a bank, you should be paying attention to, which is new customers with either new deposits or new loans. If it's the same customer doing a version of the same loan he did five years ago, okay, that's fine. You're not growing. I don't care if it is adjusted for inflation slightly higher than you know what you expect. That's not really meaningful. We've injected so much capital into the financial system over the last 15 years. And so much of it isn't landing in the traditional spots. So yes, there's more money in the banking system now than there's ever been. But as a proportion of the new capital injected into the system, it's a tiny percentage. Right. And so, you know, I think a lot of people, especially at kind of the top level federal regulatory community, just don't realize how much money is outside of the banking system. And I'll give you one metric that's kind of a useful one. Roughly speaking, you know, within kind of a reasonable margin of error, there's about $2 trillion in deposits and credit unions here in the United States, about $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. That is almost exactly what is sitting in the Fed reverse buy account as of last week. And which is also, by the way, just about the same amount of money that's been invested that it sits inside of cryptocurrencies. And even with all the hoopla over the last 30 days, that number isn't going to go down. That number is going up. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously we're seeing some activity around the regulatory side of that. But I don't think a lot of people really understand where the dollars that are created by the Treasury and the Federal Reserve have actually landed. And I think there are a lot of banks that really need to reevaluate what their product and service set is, who their customers are, and how to get it in their hands. Because you're not going to get a bunch of 27-year-olds to walk into a community bank branch. Right, right. I was talking to a a banker at our big event last week where they uh, were saying that they saw a lot of these outflows going to crypto companies. Like they saw the people that sending money via ACH to all these crypto platforms. That's when they decided they needed to do something. This was a forward-thinking bank that is exploring adding crypto trading as an offering. You know, that's the sort of thing that you know, banks have a lot of visibility into all of this, but it takes a different mindset to, I guess, to want to change. So one of the things I always think about with government is there's so much talent. I mean, I get to talk to incredibly smart people on a day-to-day basis in the fintech space and the crypto space and the banking space for that matter. And I often think about the regulators. I have a tough job. I mean, people like yourself went in there and I think there are some like you that have done it. How do bank regulators like the FDIC, you know, try and attract the talent they need to really implement this latest technology? I'm going to disassemble your question. The first is a fundamental talent question that the U.S. government has. They struggle so badly. The systems are not designed for it. You don't incentivize the right way. The salaries are off relative to market. I mean, there's just a whole list of stuff. 
I was on a panel about a week and a half, two weeks ago, where the head of human capital for the GSA, the General Services Administration, which is a big part of the government, really took exception to some of my comments because she was just like, well, you know, our job is to be a steward of these jobs and our job is to be a steward of these agencies. I'm like, but isn't your job to actually deliver the services that these agencies exist to serve? And if in 2030, you have to have 40% of your workforce have a technical background, and in 2022, it's 5%, what are you going to do to close that gap? And they don't see it as their problem. They say, oh, we can always hire someone from the private sector. Well, you can't always hire someone. Right. That's the first part, right? We tried to hire a social media manager at FDIC. And I actually had like a very senior person from another agency who'd been in the private sector. She was unbelievably well qualified for this job. We couldn't get her into the final panel. And I'm not sure why the HR process didn't let her get all the way through the panel, but a bricklayer did. And, you know, it's just ridiculous, right? And so that's the first part. The second part is the hiring systems of federal regulators is fundamentally designed to hire accountants out of accounting school or lawyers out of law school, and then to put them in a seven to 10 year training program to kind of program them how to do a job that was designed in 1987. Guess what? That is exactly who they're hiring today. That is the vast majority of the people in the hiring pipeline. The problem is, is all the lawyers who get good leave within five to 10 years. So you have a very high attrition rate of the people coming in and the people who stay don't have the technical experience and don't actually know how to do these things. So the agencies are fundamentally not hiring the people they need. And this is getting harder and harder because we are seeing a huge exodus of people with these skills leaving the regulatory community and going to other places. They're going to the PayPal's of the world. They're going to the figures of the world. They're going to JP Morgan, you know, so that there's such a concentration of that skill set in DC that there are a bunch of people who are, you know, policy advocacy types in DC running around. And they're actually, all their job is, is to steal people from federal agencies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't think a lot of people in their agencies really understand that. Right, right. That brings up to my next question, which, you know, you obviously, you stayed, I think it was about a year from thereabouts, and then you left. Then the thing that I thought was quite interesting, your op-ed that you wrote an op-ed published in Bloomberg, I think the week after or right after you quit. And, you know, I've read the op-ed like five times. I thought it was just one of the most, I felt like, brutally honest assessments of where we are when it comes to regulatory agencies for the financial system. Maybe... Just start with summarizing what you shared in the op-ed. I mean, we've talked about a lot of it. And fundamentally, I highlighted a series of points that to me are all within the power of any one agency, any one department, any one department head, any HR person, et cetera. And it was, we need to get better about hiring the right people. When we get them, we need to make sure that we're keeping them and we're training them and we're growing them. And we also need to make sure that we're protecting ourselves as agencies so that they don't want to leave. You know, so create a positive working environment, create a good culture around that. And so that's one piece of what the op-ed was about. And the second piece was fundamentally about how the agencies themselves are not really paying attention to what's going on outside. And so they don't even have visibility to a lot of these questions. You know, I spent part of my remit in the agency was focused on quantum computing, especially what we call post-quantum encryption. So it's an upgrade to the encryption we use across the internet. And there wasn't a single person in the agency when I started who really understood it except one person because he had to learn it because of an incident or there something happened that they had to pay attention to. And But he was a lawyer. He wasn't a mathematician or anything like that. So he just kind of had to take it as given. I mean, that's the thesis of the op-ed. And then, so what was it then that caused you, I mean, you just said that the government needs good people. 
and then you went ahead and quit yourself. It must have been untenable then to keep you there. What was it that really drove you to leave? I mean, there were a number of things. The first was I had set a goal of about six things I wanted to accomplish. In, and I assumed I would have been there two and a half or three years when I went in. I didn't say that, but that was kind of my assumption. And I, there were six things I wanted to accomplish. And by December of my first year, I'd gotten four of them accomplished, which was, I thought, pretty good. So that was number one. So I knew I'd kind of gotten kind of the big heavy things kind of set up the first one. The second thing that happened is there was a very gnarly political fight at the agency between the various board members. And some of that's still out in the public. A lot of it didn't. I can say that there's a lot of stuff that didn't come out in public that really, I think, you know, looking back on it, really just showed like rank unprofessionalism and terrible behavior on the part of some pretty senior people that just really, I found, I don't like working in places like that. I don't like working in places where that kind of behavior is rewarded or even tolerated. And then the third reason was I was looking out at the market and I was looking at what was going on. And I joked that I took the job as a retirement gig. And if my ability to get things done and it's a terrible work environment, and I'm looking at the market kind of moving even more quickly and more interestingly in areas that I find fascinating was there, you know, and I didn't need the paycheck. So it was kind of like I woke up one morning and I was like, this isn't worth my time. Right, right. Interesting. So then in your column, and I'll obviously link to it in the show notes, but you really didn't pull any punches. You basically said some pretty, uh, basically people not wanting to change, wanting to keep things going the way they had. Did you hear much reaction from inside governments about your column saying, I'm so glad you said that? Or people say, I wish you hadn't said that. What was the reaction? Not a single person has said that I was wrong or that they disagreed with me. (laughs) So I feel like that's a good one. So I got a lot of very positive support from a lot of circles, you know, from very junior to very senior people and all the way around. I mean, it speaks a lot that, you know, that came out on a Tuesday and by Wednesday afternoon, I was in basically in a White House discussion about this. So like there's an appreciation in some circles that I wasn't saying anything too extraordinary. The only piece of feedback I got that was even remotely negative was a, a few people saying, well, you know, why didn't you stay and stick it out and try to solve it and all this stuff? And, and fundamentally, the regime that I would have had to work inside of didn't care about what was good for the American people or what was something that would actually make things better or more cost effective or anything. They just wanted to have their own interests set taken care of, you know, kind of screw anyone else. And so, you know, I just I won't do that. Right, right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's do a creative exercise, if we will. I want to get your perspective, having been inside government now, and a lot has been talked about the complex regulatory structure that we have in this country that has you know, sort of been patched together over 200 plus years. If you were to design the, the regulatory system for finance, for banks today, what would it look like? You know, it's funny. And for the listeners, when you suggested this as a topic, my immediate response was, well, that's an entire second podcast right. to have that discussion. So, you know, it's interesting. And I've been having this conversation since I left with a lot of people in the legislative circles and, and other agencies and things like that. I'm going to talk about three parts of the answer. And I don't think I know what the full answer is, but here are three parts I think are at least interesting. Number one is you rightly point out that the entire regulatory environment of the United States is patchwork together over, you know, just shy of 90 years, basically, right? What was done in 1933 and put pen to paper in 1933, in many cases, has no relationship to how the world operates today. And so even if it isn't a full clean sheet of paper, there's a lot that could be done to bring regulations up to date with how the world currently works. So the example I give is, if you're under the age of 30, you probably have 10 apps or more on your phone where you have put some of your money. 
and you're transacting within that ecosystem on a daily basis. And those 10 things, at least nine of them are not banks. If you were to try to explain that to someone from 1950, 1980, even the year 2000, they would not get that. And the regulatory system is fundamentally oriented to protect that status quo view. So I would absolutely address that as a first piece, which is to go back and say, okay, the FDIC was created because the Federal Reserve examines banks the way it does because, and then build systems that support that. So that's the first part. The second is there are roughly speaking 120 different agencies between the state and federal level in the United States that to one degree or another have a regulatory obligation to the bank account of the American citizen. Okay. How in the name of all that is holy can you get those agencies to all agree on anything, let alone operate in a reasonably straightforward way? They don't. And think about the waste to the taxpayer. Billions and billions of dollars is being wasted, right? So to me, there is a huge consolidation exercise that needs to happen across the regulatory agencies. There are far too many agencies, far too many overlaps, far too many, we call them delegations of authorities. So for example, FinCEN might be given authority by Congress, but they can't get the budget to do it. So they have to delegate it to another agency because that agency isn't congressionally funded, i.e. FDIC. And then they go down a path there. And the thing is, we don't have to kind of imagine that from nothing. There are many countries with just as complicated a regulatory structure and requirement that we have that are doing this through more centralized activities. I highlight Germany as a fantastic example of a country that has a much more straightforward regulatory regime than what we have. And frankly, it's more efficient. If you look at how they just do de novo banks, it's a model for how we could do it. The United Kingdom is another great example, right? Both those countries have like one single regulator, a core regulator. Right. So one could make the argument that we really only need two things. We need a central bank and we need a bank regulator. Right. So two agencies, not 120 or whatever it is, and be done with it. So that's the second point. The third point is we have, I think, an awesome opportunity to create a regulatory regime that actually makes the rest of the world want to work with our banking system. And right now we aren't incentivizing that. By virtue of the fact that the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency and has been since we kind of stole it from the original Bretton Woods discussion. I'm a member of Bretton Woods, so I love this story. Do you know the story of why the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency? Have you heard this, Peter? Please share. Okay. So back when the original Bretton Woods meetings were happening, pretty much everybody agreed, except the United States, that we should create a one single global currency that everybody could use, that all the central banks could use to share money between them. And it would be managed in kind of a thoughtful way. It was kind of a fiat currency 40, 35 years before fiat currencies were thought of Mm -hmm. thoughtfully. And the guy leading that discussion was one of the delegates from the United Kingdom. And he had to go to the bathroom and then had to rush off to get back to England. And the American delegate walked over to his sheet of paper, scribbled out that part and wrote US dollar. And that's what ended up making the US dollar the global reserve currency for the Marshall Plan and all these other things we did in setting up the World Bank and the IMF and all of that. Hmm. The original plan was not. It was to actually have a single global currency for that kind of activity. And so that's why the US dollar is global reserve currency. I haven't heard that. Plus, I mean, the US economy is the largest in the world. If you're going to have a reserve currency, you don't want it for a a minor country. But that wasn't true in 1945. True. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, it may have been just in terms of industrial production, but I don't think we knew that as a real thing. So anyway, The U.S. dollar currently, we don't incentivize foreign banks to lend against the American banking system, except at the Federal Reserve, right? We don't really incentivize global capital to come to the United States. There are a number of other countries that are making it incredibly easy to do 
anything in their financial services ecosystem because they have centralized and streamlined regulatory capabilities. You know, the United Kingdom is doing a really interesting job with some stuff around crypto. You see it in places like Singapore and a few other places, but the U.S. could really engineer a system that would incentivize people to work inside of the American financial system, which is the safest and soundest in the world and the most transparent and all that stuff. We don't need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. What we have to do is make it operate in a way that actually incentivizes people to do that. And so if we move to a much smaller number of agencies, and really, I think it should be two agencies. It should be a Expertly oriented central bank and then an internally oriented regulatory body. Hmm. And that's because right now it's 50,000 people and half of them are doing a job someone else in another agency is doing. Right. Yeah, that is so wasteful. So given the realities that we do have 120 plus regulatory agencies and each one wants to justify their existence and does not want to give up the fight, what are some incremental things we can do to kind of get to a better place? Well, I mean, the first one is something that we're seeing Congress already take action on, which is to begin to think about how to regulate the cryptocurrency environment and do it in a straightforward way. Like, that's a great thing to happen. I think there's some good legislation coming out. I think it'll get better as it iterates over time because it's still, you know, this is a highly dynamic environment. So that's a big one. And ensuring that there's a way for those crypto environments to be regulated and operate in the global financial system is going to be a win if we can figure out how to do that versus this kind of knee-jerk thing you see with the People's Republic of China where they're just like, we'll make it all illegal. Well, that's not going to work. I mean, especially when like 70% of crypto holders are American citizens, like that's just not going to happen, right? So that's one big thing that I'm excited to see some forward progress on. The second thing that we could really do is prioritize hiring leaders, agency directors, deputies, and senior staff at all the regulatory agencies who actually know how these new systems work, who know how technology works, who aren't incentivized for stasis and who are incentivized to actually make things better. We do a terrible job with incentivization. And so I look at the pipeline of people that both the major parties are thinking about putting in either now or over the next couple of presidential cycles for agency leadership, Fed board roles, you know, Fed presidencies, things like that. And I'm kind of slightly more involved in that because I'm, you know, wanting to make sure we have people who actually understand how these things operate, right? And actually know how to drive change and who've actually driven change before. Like the first time you're an agency director, it shouldn't be because you had 30 years tenure at the agency. It should be because you understand what the goal is and what we have to do. The agencies generally, especially OCC, FDIC, CFPB, and Federal Reserve, all have tremendous statutory flexibility in terms of doing what they do. The statutory authority doesn't necessarily say how you do it. It just says what the result has to be. And in some cases, the legislation was incredibly well-written. I mean, the FDI Act, the Banking Act, there's some really thoughtful nuance in there. And it is just that the agency leaderships have historically been bureaucrats or insiders or not you know, strategic leaders who understand how to make those changes. Maybe we could close with your perspective here. Are you optimistic or pessimistic on the future of the federal agencies and their role in the regulatory system and keeping up to date, keeping things going? I am always hopeful. I am not necessarily optimistic. I think that because of ambiguity in action and so many of the people involved in these discussions having planning horizons that are just a few years long because they're already retirement age and they're not really thinking about this as something they have to solve for the next century, I think we're going to see 
eight out of every 10 decisions that need to get made are not going to get made in the next couple of years. It's just going to be kick the can down the road. And you certainly see that with the crypto EO that came out last week, or actually, no, it's today. Today was supposed to be the day where all the agencies got back with their initial research comments, et cetera, et cetera. And it's already been moved out to like Thanksgiving, basically, which means next year. Right. So like they're just kicking the can down the curb. And then the 20% decisions that are being made are not going to be made because it's the right thing to do. It's going to be made because somebody wants to be the next treasury secretary or somebody just is like, well, I just want this to all be illegal. Or I want to, you know, I want us to have postal banking like Marty Grunberg has been quoted talking about, you know, like right, that kind of stuff. Right. So, you know, I'm hopeful that we can, you know, because there are good people. And that's the thing I don't want this to come off like I'm just taking a cricket bat to this entire discussion. But like, there are some good people in these agencies. The problem is, is because they aren't playing the the high school politics that so much of these agencies operate around. They're not in positions to actually make, you know, help make the right decisions here. And so, you know, you got to go down four or five levels in most of these agencies to get to people who actually understand most of these issues. And so I'm pretty sure that anything that at that level that anyone wants to do, the vast majority of people, you, me, and anyone else will probably be okay with. The problem is, is it can't get through that political layer. And that's right. the thing that I think really stops a lot of these discussions. So here is a great example. And here's the one that will be a harbinger for me as to whether or not I should really be excited about where we're going or not. I already talked about quantum resilient encryption, post-quantum encryption. This is a fundamental thing that's happening. New standards around encryption are coming out with on, a, on an almost daily basis. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, is going to have a new standard for encryption on the internet at some point in the not-too-distant future. How the regulatory agencies respond to that is going to be a key indicator for me is if they've actually internalized some of these discussions. Once that's available, it should be no more than six months before that is in place. If you're not using it, you're going to get dinged on your examinations, et cetera, et cetera. I am willing to bet that it will take closer to three to five years. Right, right. Well, I hope you're wrong, but we'll have to leave it there, Sultan. It was uh, a really fascinating and illuminating discussion. So thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Peter. Great to see you as always. You know, in this fast-paced world we live in today, there is certainly no guarantee that the United States is going to maintain its financial dominance of the world, that the U.S., dollar will be the world's reserve currency. That may not change in the short term, but in the long term, if we don't do something about the regulatory system to make it easier and less wasteful and embracing of innovation, if we don't do something about that in the near term, I think the chances of our long-term dominance is uh, going to be reduced substantially. We need to have a regulatory system that embraces innovation because the pace of change It's only going to accelerate. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. 